Father, we stand amazed that the hope that we have is not simply in some ancient documents, some old belief, but Lord, our hope is embedded in Your living Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, who bore the shame, who bore the guilt on the cross for us. And we sing and say, Hallelujah. Hallelujah, what a Savior. We stand amazed in Your presence. We just are, we wonder about being able to in any way be in relationship with You. So Father, as we continue before You this morning, pray that You would open our hearts, Lord, not just our minds for the sake of curiosity, but our souls that we might live in a manner that's pleasing to You. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Okay, fair warning. I'm about to give you a series of silly jokes about a very solemn subject. Coffee. In a tip of the hat to Jeff Foxworthy, uh, you may be drinking too much coffee if... okay. So you may be drinking too much coffee if you can thread a sewing machine while it's running. You may be drinking too much coffee if the local coffee shop gives you the employee of the month plaque and you don't work there. You may be drinking too much coffee if you have a photo of your coffee cup on your desk next to the photo of your spouse. Okay, one last one. Uh, did you hear about the woman who insisted that it was the man's job to fix the coffee in the morning? Uh, so she showed him in the Bible where it said, He brews. Okay, alright. Almost every day, I enjoy a cup of coffee. And I like it hot. Uh, however, by the time I'm halfway done with it, it's already cooled down to room temperature. What's up with that? Uh, I only drink a medium, but I buy a large because I've discovered that it retains the heat longer. So that by the time I've drank the amount of coffee that I want to, uh, it's uh, it's about it's about right. But it still it it still cools down. Have you ever wondered why your coffee won't stay hot? Have you ever thought about it? I mean, have you ever wondered why an air conditioner has to get so hot to produce cold air? I mean, that's just like counterintuitive, right? Have you ever wondered why it takes, uh, I mean, air comes out of your tire if somebody pokes a hole in it, you know. I'm not a, uh, I'm not a physicist. Uh, I don't have the mind for it. I don't have the training for it. But I do know some things. And what I'm told is 
All of that has to do with the second law of thermodynamics. So let me back this up a little bit, not with me, but with this fellow we've probably heard of, Albert Einstein, arguably one of the most notable physicists ever. He said that the second law of thermodynamics is the only physical theory of the universe of universal content that I believe will never be overthrown. Fellow physicist Arthur Eddington said, if your theory is found to be against the second law of thermodynamics, I give you no hope. There is nothing for it but to collapse in deepest humiliation. <laughs> he had to have been British. So, so what is this second law of thermodynamics? And other than my cold coffee, why should we care? The second law of thermodynamics states that heat cannot be transferred from a colder to a hotter body. And so because of this fact, it goes on to say, natural processes that involve energy transfer must have one irreversible direction. The law also predicts that entropy in an isolated system always increases with time uh, because of the second law of thermodynamics. Both the energy and the matter in the universe are becoming less useful as time goes on. So let me translate that for you. A blanket made out of ice cubes will not keep you warm. So, however, you might melt the ice cubes. So, uh, that's what it is. Why should we care? Because ultimately, the reason that my coffee gets cold is the same reason that one day I will die. It's why our cars break down. It's why physicists, I don't know, maybe, do we have any physicist type people in here? Maybe your engineering types come closest, right? Oh, that's why physicists wear t-shirts that say the heat death is coming. Now, it's an ironic statement because they don't mean heat by death. What they mean is the death of heat itself. And actually, that is the most uh, plausible and uh, most widely held and accepted theory of the universe. So according to the second law of thermodynamics, its result, that is entropy, if you go towards maximum entropy, that just means everything is really, really cold. Stars and matter are going to continue to separate from one another and get so far apart that there will be no heat left. They'll just run out and they'll freeze and they'll disintegrate until finally there's no matter left. Stars will die, they'll burn out, and the universe will freeze over. This is our world. If you go to university today, they will tell you this is our world. Or is it? Abraham Kuyper, founder of the Free University in Amsterdam, and for a period of time the Prime Minister of uh, uh, the Netherlands, argued that people in the world are divided into two camps. 
You have normalists and you have abnormalists. So follow me on this. Normalists believe that the physical universe that began with the Big Bang and all the physical properties and laws and statistical probabilities that exist are all normal. Evolution is normal. Aging is normal. Death is normal. One day our world will end by perfectly normal processes. In British uh, authors Douglas Adams' book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, we read of the restaurant at the end of the universe. So somebody had built a restaurant on an old, decrepit planet, and it got put in a time bubble, and it was cast forward to the exact moment of the end of the universe. And that's the way normalists think. They believe by definition that you'll have cataclysms and Armageddon and then finally everything will get cold and just die. We're destined to nothing, for nothing, from nothing, nothing. Their view, their view of the future is always seen in these tremendous catastrophes. Either an asteroid is hitting the earth or something along those lines. You can see this kind of stuff in Day After Tomorrow, Deep Impact, Armageddon, Independence Day, Godzilla even. Probably even, who are those mechanical cars? The Transformer types and all of that. And of course, in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the earth is destroyed. If you've never read this or heard this, the earth is destroyed in order to make room for a hyperspatial express Bypass, i.e. an on-ramp or an off-ramp or whatever. Anyway, who knows? Maybe Thanos will return. Now, on the other hand, Kuiper talks about abnormalists. Abnormalists believe that none of those things are normal at all. They are temporal aberrations brought about when Adam sinned. Abnormalists believe that the second law of thermodynamics, the only law that Albert Einstein believed would never be overturned to be an irregularity, an aberration, something brought to us by sin as a result of the fall. Abnormalists believe that aging and death and broken relationships and malice and deceits and envy and slander are altogether abnormal. Our text today, and if you, if you read ahead, you're going, how do you get this out of the text? I'll show you. Our text today describes a wholly abnormal world. A world that should not be, but is because of sin. And Peter is going to tell us how to live well in that world. Turn to the Scriptures in 1 Peter 1, 22-25. 1 Peter 1, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 22-25, we read this, "...having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love..." Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, 
not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. Peter in this text describes exactly how abnormal our world is. And he provides us a pathway to walk in that world. First, he says uh, about the seed. So the thing with the seed is that no matter uh, how old it is or how long it lasts, it had a beginning. It had a beginning and it will have an end. In fact, When we are conceived, the very imprint of our death is upon us. Second, all flesh, and read all humans, that's what he's talking about. And our glory, you know what your glory is? Have you ever seen a flower on on grass? I don't, it's not, I don't, you know, I've seen flowers on weeds and stalks and things like that. But I think he's just talking about, it's not much right here. And that's our glory, how mighty we are. And third, that grass withers and that flower falls. I'm reminded of an illustration that I heard when I was a a young man and it had a profound impact on me, honestly. For the life of me, I can't remember who, who said it and you'll find the irony of that in just a moment. Essentially, the illustration was your life in five sentences. Who's John? I've heard of John. We need John. I've heard of John. Who's John? Thankfully, Peter doesn't stop there. He doesn't leave us in stranded in meaninglessness of this normal world. No, this is not right, Peter says. Peter says you were not born of perishable, decaying seed that will one day just simply turn to dust. You were born of imperishable, eternal. What you have is that you do not belong to someone that will one day experience the heat death. No, you are alive and the reason that we live, all of us, is through the living and abiding Word of God. Rest your mind on this staggering thought for just a moment. What we have in the end of that text that we read, Michael Card put to a song, Isaiah chapter 40, he put that in his song, Emmanuel, and it goes something like this. For all those who live in the shadow of death, a glorious light has dawned. For all those who stumble in the darkness, behold, your light has come. The gospel of Jesus Christ has taken us from what we thought was normal, from what we thought we knew it was the way it was, to something entirely different. To a world that we did not know. To a relationship in our heart that we did not have. And what we know in this true 
reality is the eternality of God and His goodness and His provision to allow us to come to Him and dwell with Him forever. You see, that's what makes believers exclaim and write songs about this world is not my home. We are exiles here. We are we're sojourners. We are not designed in this world to plant our roots deeply here. We're to hold things lightly, knowing that our citizenship is in heaven. We're just passing through. Yet, all around us, cold coffee and some of these difficult things that I've mentioned aren't the only thing that the second law of thermodynamics touches. While a scientist would certainly argue with this, I believe that the second law of thermodynamics also applies to morality. I believe that there's moral entropy all around us. I believe that societies outside of brilliant moments in a flash are destined for morals and values and mores to simply collapse as we become self-seeking and self-serving and we're caught up in sin. I mean, look in uh, just immediately ahead of that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And as you're doing that, remember that in the Bible, in the original, there are no chapters, there are no uh, verses. That wasn't done until a few hundred years ago. It's very convenient for us, but it interrupts the thought. This thought continues. So put away, since all this is going to happen, Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. In other words, put those things away from you because they do not belong with your new heart. They do not belong in your new family. They do not belong in your new world. And the moral entropy that covers our planet, really, to an abnormalist like us, is, is a stench. It is. But to the normalist, it's, it's a fragrant aroma. It smells so good. It's liberating. It's therapeutic. It's beneficial. Peter's writing here is so elegant that it's easy to miss exactly what he's saying to us in order to get out of that and stay out of that. And so I'm going to read the text again. This time I'm going to use my own translation taken from a grammatical stance. Not because it's better I'm not, a, I'm not a translator at all, but simply because it helped me to understand better what the text was saying. Love one another fervently with a pure heart, since you have, been pure, since you have purified your souls by obeying the truth, you have a sincere love of the brethren, and having been born again, not of decaying seed, 
but eternal through the Word of God which lives and abides forever. Essentially, the, the flow, as I see it in this text, is the text, it offers one reason, you have been born again. See, you're not part of this world. You have been born again. Or at least, the best one could say is you've got one foot in this world and one in, in the next. You have been born again with one result, sincere love and two commands to pursue that life of love, earnest and pure. So simply stated, it's, it's this. Because we have been born again, resulting in a seer love, we must love earnestly and purely. Being born again moves us from this world to another world. It moves us, as Kuiper said, from being a normalist to an abnormalist. There in verse uh, 22, it says, where it says, you have purified your souls. If you look at it in this, the way that I put this together grammatically, it is, uh, it parallels having uh, been born again, since you've been born again. He's writing to people who are exiles, trying to find a home, in need of a home. And what he's saying here is that through the new birth, through God's eternal Word, establishing, once you establish a relationship with God and are one of God's children, guess who you're part of a family with now? All of the other people who are in relationship with God. Now we're part of a family as we journey through this world. And Peter points out that this new birth takes place through the agency of the Word. And this is incredibly important here. This is not produced by man, but by God. If I effected, if I caused, if I produced my salvation, then guess what? I can uneffect it. I can uncause it. I can unproduce it. And the word here is, it's, uh, I love it because it, when you look at the text, it says, have been born again. Okay, grammarians out there, it's passive. You didn't do it. You've been born again through the Word of God, the power of God, Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross, the Holy Spirit. That giving life to your heart. Titus tells us in uh, chapter 3, verse 5 of, of that book, uh, Paul, it is God who saves us by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. The power of God's Word is, is simply staggering. I once read, and I'm going to share it with you, according to the American Bible Society record, uh, the General Secretary of the Bible Society in uh, Zimbabwe, Gaylord uh, Kambarami, he would give out Bibles for free. He would he would give them out, and uh, and one day he was giving, uh, trying to give a belligerent, antagonistic man a, a a Bible, and he says, "I won't take it. Why? 
He says, because all I'll do is roll cigarettes out of the pages. And so, uh, and so uh, Gaylord said, well, you know what? That's fine. Do that. But just promise me that you'll read the page before you smoke it. <laughs> and the guy said, okay, all right, uh, that's what I'll do. And the two went their separate ways. Fifteen years later, they're at a conference. And Gaylord is sitting there. And guess who stands up but this man that 15 years earlier he had given the Bible to. And he is the keynote speaker (laughs) at this conference. And as part of his testimony, he says, I smoked my way through Matthew. And I smoked my way through Mark. And I smoked my way through Luke. But I couldn't get through John. And when I got to John 3.16, the Lord changed my heart. And I gave my life to Him. Aren't you glad that it's not just a book? And aren't you glad that if you feel in any way that you've ever lost for loss, or waste any money or any resource that provided a Bible anywhere, in any space, any place, any time, trust me, it's going to do something. God will see to it. And the power of God's Word, it's not simply astounding, but it's also eternal. Peter describes this new birth as coming from an imperishable seed as opposed to the decaying seed that we see in human birth. That imperishable seed, of course, is is the Word, which is, the text says, living and abiding. And the new life which God imparts is also eternal. It's not subject to death. Peter, we mentioned this before, but Peter quotes from Isaiah 40, 6-8, And Isaiah prophetically wrote at that point in time to the Israelites who had been taken captive. If you're uh, part of our uh, Wednesday night, this will be very familiar to you. And he was comforting his people by telling them he was going to restore them to the land. Their problem was all they saw was Babylon and Jerusalem. And Babylon was impressive. And Jerusalem was unimpressive. And Babylon had walls that were impenetrable. And Jerusalem's walls were broken down. And Babylon had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world with the hanging gardens. And Jerusalem was desolate. Babylon was an amazing place. Jerusalem was not. The Lord knew this and He's comforting His people. And so what does He say in Isaiah 40? All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of the Lord abides forever. In other words, don't be fooled by Babylon. It will fade like the grass, and the flower of it will fall. So whatever you see around you that is so impressive, 
that so you, you feel like that will never change. It will. And it's not that impressive compared to the Word of God. And this Word of God is the Word which was preached as good news to you. I could talk for a very long time about the Bible and about the canon and about how it was transmitted to us. That's for another time. But I will say this. There have been a lot of people try to get rid of it. In 303, the Roman, uh, the Roman uh, Emperor uh, Diocletian, he outlawed the Scripture. He demanded that every copy of the Scripture in the entire Roman Empire be burned, be destroyed. And yet, it was only 25 years later, 25 years later, that Constantine commissioned a scholar named Eusebius to, at government expense, produce 50 copies of the Bible. It's an amazing thing. Peter's readers were suffering as aliens in a foreign land. And that's, that's, a, tough, that's a tough thing that they, that they were facing. Just one little thing with... Uh, I didn't ask Barb if I could share this, but she's usually okay with that. <laughs> we'll see if it stays that way. We had been living in Jordan on the economy for a year. If you don't know what on the economy means, that means that we were not in a western area or ghetto or anything like that. We, were, we just lived with the people and among the people. We didn't have a car. And so... Everywhere we went, we either walked or we, we took a taxi. Well, Barb got word that uh, the U.S. Embassy had uh, a library. And in this library, uh, they would often take uh, children and they would show uh, children's movies in English. And so Barb needed to get a card. She wanted to go to the library. So off she goes to the embassy. Now, if you've never had an experience like that before, you may not appreciate it. The closest thing that it comes to, I think, is probably the DMV, where you have to get through concentric circles, not only of craziness, but also security. And so by the time she's in, you know, the, uh, the, the third circle of, of Hades trying to get in there... She uh, she finally says, I just want to talk to somebody who speaks English. And the man in front of her said, well, I speak English. And she said, without an accent. <laughs> and I, I think the closest I ever came to losing her was when she finally got into the embassy and there to greet her was a big Marine who said, how may I help you, ma'am? <laughs> you know, when we come to church, have you ever wondered why you come here? Really? Yeah, okay, it's the teaching, but the truth is, in part, truth is you can get that on your own. The internet these days, the stuff you can watch, you can watch people who preach better than we have, 
who teach better than we have. I mean, it's all there. I mean, it's just there. And you can go, you can go and listen and you can, you can have that. I contend that's not why we, I contend that's not why you're here. You're not here to hear me. You're here to be part of a family with one another. You're here because when you come here, you can say, ah, they speak my language. And it doesn't matter which language you speak. Because it's the language of love that is embedded in our hearts through Jesus Christ. And we're a people of like spirit, of like heart, of like mind. We love the Lord Jesus Christ. And He is the center of that relationship. And in that, we can take a moment out of our lives and we can say, you understand me and I understand you. And we speak the language of love in our native tongue. That's why we're here. And biblical love is, uh, it's, it's, is an emotion. I don't want to say that it's not. But more than an emotion, it's, it's a verb. It's an action. It's an action that seeks the highest good for the one loved. It's, it's, it, at the core of it is hesed, which we've talked about before. God's unfailing, never-ending, ever-present, ever-available loving kindness for you and for me. And we've said this before, it doesn't mean being nice because sometimes loving kindness hurts, but it does mean being kind. So Peter describes this love in three ways. First, it's a sincere love. I love the word. It's anhupakritos, which you should recognize immediately. It means without hypocrisy. It means sincere. And biblical love is not a love that's shown in order to be manipulative, trying to take advantage of another person. Biblical love does not use others for personal gain, ever. No, rather it's a pure love. It's a clean love. In other words, love that we have for one another is not for impurity, for inappropriate financial or personal or sexual favors. You cannot love if you harbor deceit and those kinds of things. That's not biblical love. Biblical love is seeking the best for the person in front of you. And that has to stem from a clean heart. And only through Jesus Christ can we even begin to think in those kinds of terms. And finally, and I love this word, uh, we've, we've actually heard it in a few contexts the last couple of weeks in our uh, communion service, uh, even in Sunday school and some other places. It must be a, a fervent love. That is, we do it uh, earnestly and if, if I say that, I'm going to say the Greek word to you and you'll know or you'll be able to figure out very easily after I tell you what it means. It's extinosin, extension, extension. And what it means is the full stretch. It means all out. It means to stretch as far as you can in order to love another person other than yourself. It's the same thing as the coach telling an athlete to leave it out on the field. 
This is the word that's used of Jesus Christ when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He left it all out there with God. This is the same fervent extension. This is the stretching and the living it out to the full extent when Peter was in prison and the men and women of God who knew about it were praying for his release. Single-hearted effort to show love. Biblical love can be commanded. We're commanded. In fact, that's what Peter just did. That's not the only place. All through the Bible, we are commanded to love one another. And thus, it involves the will. It involves hard work. It involves effort. And it's not always easy. But it is required as a crucial part of our lives in Jesus Christ. All of you know that something is wrong. Something is wrong. It's not right. You sense it. It's, it's in your soul too. It's not a knowledge that you have to think of. It's just something that you understand that this world is not right. There's something wrong with it. We were not created for this. It's like a splinter in your soul. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and He will remove that splinter. And having had believed, having been born again, to what? To love. And to good works. What are those good works? That's another sermon. But those are the extension, the stretching out of what it means to love someone else. Not in order to be loved, but because you have been loved. I invite you to trust Him today. That's for those who do not know Him. That's also for those who do know Him. Trust is not something that is only for the unbeliever. It is for the believer too. Trust Him and love one another purely and earnestly. Father, we thank You that You have given us everything that we need You haven't given us everything yet. You will. We look forward to that day. But you have given us everything that we need for this day. Allow us to have eyes to see. Hearts that are open. And Lord, if any of us for any reason has closed our heart to someone who is in your family, may we reflect on the kind of love that stretches out to its full extent and revisit it, at least in our hearts and in our minds.
And maybe that will lead to action. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.